The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 141, a Psalm of David. Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff. And they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered up at the mouth of the grave, as one plows and breaks up the earth. But my eyes are upon you, O God, the Lord In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me, and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. 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 We're in uh, Deuteronomy 9 now. Finished up chapter 8 last week, and we're in Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 through 6. This is entitled, Not Because of Your Righteousness. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Insightfully, and right off the bat, Albert Barnes comments on this chapter saying, The lesson of this chapter is exactly that of Ephesians 2, 8. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As obvious as that seems, once you have somebody tell you, it is not something one would normally think of while toiling away through the law of Moses. The people have been given law, they will be given more law, and in the process they are told again and again that adherence to the law is necessary for them. However, throughout the law, and even in the passage today, more than mere observance of the law is defined. Living out the law without an upright heart means absolutely nothing. That is testified to elsewhere, outside of the covenant people, as we will look at today. And so as we progress, we continue to see hints of what God is up to in our return to the paradise we lost so long ago. Adam was covered by the Lord after he demonstrated faith in the Lord's promise. Abraham was counted as righteous by simply believing the Lord, accepting his word at face value. People outside of the covenant line are considered upright and blameless by the Lord. And even those who are under the law have found righteousness apart from the law by a mere act of faith. As Paul says in our text verse today, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Israel is being schooled on what pleases the Lord. Through Israel's schooling, we too can be instructed. Their history is recorded for exactly that reason, and it is a history that calls out for something more than anything they or we can bring out of ourselves. Rather, it calls for a yielding to God and a submission to what he offers at whatever time in history we live. We will see that today, and we will also begin a short chiasm with our last verse from our text today. As it begins there, we will lay it out today, and then we'll go through the rest of it next week. Deuteronomy 9, 6 through 13, this is called Breaking the Covenant. This is one I found back in 2008. The first verse, 9, 6, you are a stiff-necked people, and then that follows on with 9, 13. Indeed, they are a stiff-necked people. In the next verse, or B, you, came, you who came out of Egypt provoked the Lord to wrath. B, the people who came out of Egypt acted corruptly and disobeyed the Lord. C, I received two tablets of stone, went on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. C, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone. And the middle verse, the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire. Great things, such as justification by grace through faith, and interesting patterns such as chiasms are just a few of the wonderful aspects of the marvels to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, as the Lord has said to you. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Shema Yisrael, Ata Ober, Hayom, Et Hayarden. Hear, Israel, you are passing over today the Jordan. The words of Moses are as if it is happening right at the moment, and thus it is as if the action is already assured. It is happening, and it is today. Because of this, the word today is to be taken as a point in time and not literally on the day that it is spoken. It places the speaking out of Deuteronomy in the light of one moment in time, regardless as to how long that time is. We speak of the day of the Lord. It doesn't mean a single day, but a period of time that is set before the people of the world, regardless as to its actual length. This then takes us back to the thought of the previous chapter. Moses reminded the people to be observant to the commandment of the Lord when they went in to possess the land. He recounted the Lord's care of the people in the wilderness, showing them that their chastening was a part of their instruction. Just as the Lord cared for them, so he would do so in Canaan. But they were to remember that it was the Lord who brought them in, not they themselves. To complete the chapter, he said, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Now Moses continues the instruction of this day by explaining what those nations the Lord will destroy before them are like verse 1 going on, and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. The thought here rotates all the way back to the words of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. Moses has already said who they will face. He has also explained that not only are they the inhabitants jointly greater and mightier than Israel, 
They are individually greater and mightier than they are as well. And yet they will possess the land because they will dispossess the inhabitants of the land. And this, despite them having, verse 1 continues, cities great and fortified up to heaven. Arim gedolot ubesurot bashamayim. Cities great and fortified in the heavens. Here Moses uses the exact same words that the moaners of Israel spoke in Deuteronomy 1 verse 28 as they complained about the land when it was first presented to them. It said there, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Like at that time, Moses' words now contain no article before the word cities. Also, the word heavens is plural, and it is prefixed by an article, in the heavens. The words would normally be expected to elicit awe and fear as Moses repeats this hyperbolic statement that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. There it's said that the people determined to build a tower whose top is in the heavens. The idea is that to any other army, those in Canaan would seem like gods dwelling in inaccessible strongholds that could not be defeated. However, the Lord was to be with Israel, and so the victory was assured. Paul uses Moses' terminology in Ephesians chapter 6 to make a spiritual application of what is stated right here in Deuteronomy. He says, For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Paul, being trained in the law of Moses as a Pharisee, and then coming to Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, was able to see the direct connection between what occurred with Israel in a temporal way and what believers now face on a spiritual level. Just as Moses reminds Israel that it is the Lord who made the victory possible and who is then due the glory of it, so Paul makes the same connection, saying that we prevail when we put on the whole armor of God. If it is the armor of God that makes the victory possible, then it is the Lord who is to receive the glory. With this advanced understanding, Moses continues, verse 2, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim. Again, Moses reaches back to the second clause of the same verse from Deuteronomy 1. There he says, moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. He is taking the words of the pusillanimous people who stood at the door of Canaan, and he is turning them around for this new generation to consider and to understand. The Lord is, in fact, with Israel. They didn't just have the exodus from Egypt, but they also had the Lord's care of them throughout the wilderness wanderings. This is why in chapter 7, Moses so carefully explained the Lord's care of them in the wilderness. As we saw then, it was to four things. Demonstrate, one, his greatness in not destroying them for rejecting him. Two, that it is by his power that the inheritance is acquired because they are the least of all the peoples. Three, his love for them as a people. And four, his faithfulness to the oath he swore to their fathers. As was noted then concerning the third point, the Lord's love for Israel is one originally based on his love for their fathers. There's nothing intrinsically worthy of that love in them, but because of his nature, which is love, he then directs it to those of the covenant promises. Before going on, we have to remind ourselves of what all of this is typologically representing, meaning salvation and obtaining a heavenly inheritance in Christ. Israel had rejected the Lord's offer of Canaan after they left Mount Sinai. And because of that, they were sent into exile in the wilderness. And yet they were preserved as a people through that exile all the way up until modern times. The land now stands before them, but it must be acquired through faith, the same faith that their fathers lacked. That scenario pictured Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, their exile among the nations, their preservation as a people because of the four points just noted a minute ago, and his offer to them once again to enter the inheritance. What the Gentiles received by faith 2,000 years ago will be offered once again to Israel. It is good to keep reminding ourselves of the typology so that we don't get too far from what the Lord is telling us. For those in the world who have never received Jesus Christ or who are attempting to earn God's favor through the law, the offer is being shouted out for them to consider. Just look at the Lord's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. Consider it. Take it to heart and come to Christ through faith. The inheritance awaits. For now, we return to Moses' ongoing words to the people. Verse 2 continues, Whom you know, 
and of whom you heard it said, Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? The words of Moses bear an emphasis, Ashur Atah, Yadata Ve'ata Shamata, which you know and you heard. I got to stop right there. You know, I'm always giving you the Hebrew because then I want to explain it in the English and I want to see you to see how precise it is. But it's very embarrassing for me who speaks very poor Hebrew to have these people here right now because they know how poorly I speak. You don't. Anyway, we'll go on. That's very accurate. Very good. It's very good, he says. He's, I, I never saw a nose grow so fast in my life. The people standing before Moses now had heard the words of their fathers after the spies' report, which said, Numbers 13, there we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. The spies described the Anakim and outwent the word throughout the camp. Though it is not recorded before, Moses ironically repeats what the people called out. Who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Egypt had been destroyed. Water came from the rock. Manna came to the people daily. The law had been received, accompanied by the terrible and awesome display of the Lord, and on and on and on. And yet, the people worried about the descendants of Anak. In their faithless conduct, they were rewarded for that conduct, death in the wilderness. And it is with those standing before Moses now who had seen these things with their own eyes They had watched their grandparents and their parents die in the wilderness. Verse 3, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. The Hebrew bears a strong emphasis and uses a verb to describe the Lord. And understand today, for Jehovah your God, he the passer over before your face, fire consuming. In other words, what your fathers failed to accept, you are now to understand and to acknowledge. The Lord is the one who is the passer over before you. He is the consuming fire. The sight of the Lord on the mountain was to the people like a consuming fire. The fire of the Lord came out to consume the offerings on the altar. The fire of the Lord consumed the moaners at Kibroth Hata'ava, and the fire of the Lord consumed the 250 rebels. And guess what? The fire of the Lord even consumed the two oldest sons of Aaron. He is a consuming fire. The people had seen these and other such things, and they had survived. If the Lord wanted to, he could have destroyed all of them. The fact that they were there on the shore of the Jordan after the many years in the wilderness testified to the fact that the Lord both had positive intentions for them and that he had the power and ability to destroy their enemies before them. Now I want you to stop and think of modern Israel. The proof is in the pudding. They have survived as a people for 2,000 years despite all of the odds. They have been regathered into the land exactly as Ezekiel 36 said would happen, 37 said would happen, 38 said would happen. He would gather these people back into the land and he would do these things for them as proof that what he is saying here in the book of Deuteronomy is the same proof that we have in the world today. And yet people dismiss Israel as an aberration. They dismiss Israel saying the church has replaced it and on. I had somebody yesterday email me and ask about replacement theology. He said, I've been studying everything I can on both sides and I don't know where to go with this. I said, he said, I trust your opinion. What do you say? I said, all you need to do is go back and watch the third of the Leviticus 26 sermons where he promises to punish them until the end of the world. And yet he brought them back to the land and he appeals to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And so you could say, well, The church has replaced Israel because he's appealing to the Abrahamic covenant, and that in the New Testament applies to Gentiles, right? But what does he do right after that in the next verse? He appeals to the covenant from the people brought out of Egypt. That's not the Abrahamic covenant. That's the law of Moses. And he says, a long time from now, I'm paraphrasing, Charlie Gare's paraphrase, I am going to reaffirm my covenant with them, the Mosaic covenant. And no Gentile in their right mind would want to be under the Mosaic Covenant. They're in the New Covenant in Christ. Everybody see this? So I said, that's all you need. I can give you all the information all day you want. Go read uh, uh, Romans 9 through 11 and uh, on my commentary, and you'll see all the replacement theology nonsense swept away. But just go to Leviticus 26. You don't need to leave the law of Moses to understand these things. God is faithful 
to his unfaithful people, meaning you and me and Israel. As Moses says, verse 3 continues, he will destroy them and bring them down before you. Again, the Hebrew is emphatic. You think Moses is trying to make a point three times in a row? Who yashmidem vehu yachniem lefanecha. He will overthrow them and he will humble them before your face. The path will be cleared and every obstacle will be removed from before Israel. Further, in the use of the word translated as bring them down, Moses is making a pun. The word is kana, the root of the word Canaan, or we would say kanan. It signifies to humble. The Lord is the one who will humble those who are humbled. In this, it will allow for what will then be a synergistic accomplishment. Synergistic means working together. Monergistic means somebody does something alone. Synergistic accomplishment, as is seen in the next words. Verse 3 continues, So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. Using two different words than the previous clause, Moses says, Vehorashtam vehaabadtam maher. And you shall dispossess them, and you shall annihilate them quickly. The words are not in any way contradictory to chapter 7, where it uses the same word here, which is translated as quickly. In chapter 7, it said this, And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little, and you will be unable to destroy them maher at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. So people try to tear apart the Bible and say, you see, you got a contradiction here. It is a subjective term used for the first time in the sense of the overall process of clearing out the inhabitants of the land. Here, it is referring to the destruction of the various nations as they are brought forward for individual destruction, highlighted by the Anakim who were just mentioned. They will be destroyed quickly. What is important about the words stated here is that the previous clause said that the Lord would accomplish the action. He would be the destroyer. Now, Israel is said to be the instrument by which that occurs. You shall. Thus, there is a synergy between the two. The question before us is, and I want to ask each one of you, has Jesus accomplished everything necessary for us to enter the promised inheritance? Yes. Yes. And yet, if we do not act, there will be no reception of the inheritance. The lie of the monergistic model of salvation, speaking about Calvinism, is exposed in these Old Testament passages. The Lord paved the way for Israel to enter the promise, but they at first rejected that path. He now sets before them the same opportunity, but Israel must choose to believe the Lord and cross over the Jordan. And so it is true with our own spiritual walk now, even after salvation, the Lord has saved us. It is a done deal. And yet there are battles that must be fought. We can lie down before the enemy, just as Israel could have, and as most churches in America have by now, or we can take up the implements, Ephesians chapter 6, of our salvation and use them to actively go forward. Have we heard the truth? Have we been given the breastplate of righteousness? Have we been provided the gospel of peace? And so on. Of course we have. The Lord has already accomplished all of this for us, and he has already made these things available to us. And yet, we must do our part. As Paul says, we must stand, we must gird, we must put on. If we don't, we will remain ineffective in our salvation, just as Israel became ineffective in the possession of the land of their inheritance. And when we do our part, we cannot take one mote of credit for it. We simply did what we were supposed to do because of what he has already done for us. And this is what Israel must face in the future as well. They must acknowledge that the entire process is solely of the Lord, and yet they must do their part in order to receive what the Lord has already provided. For Israel, ready to enter Canaan, they must remember the past and act upon it. Crossing the Jordan and subduing the land is as simple for them as trusting the Lord's past performance and then acting upon that. For Israel, in relation to Christ Jesus, they must remember the past and act upon it. They rejected him, they went into exile, and they were tended to and maintained as a people through that. They will be brought forward to the place where they must face him again. Israel must learn from their past failures, acknowledge that the Lord has faithfully proven himself, and then respond accordingly. Verse 3 going on, as the Lord has said to you. Not only has he said it, 
He's done so repeatedly, both from his own mouth and through Moses, who spoke forth his words, such as Deuteronomy 7. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Understanding these things and reflecting on them, whether speaking of Israel and Canaan or a believer in Christ, all need to consider why the Lord does these things. It is not that Israel was righteous, nor is it because we are righteous. None should ever come to that conclusion. Our God is a consuming fire. He will destroy the enemies arrayed against you. Though their fortifications go up higher and higher, they will be torn down, and you shall go through. What have you to fear? The Lord is on your side. He has promised that he will carry you through. He will bring you near, the one without pride. It is just as he has promised to do. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be confident of this. God will carry you through. There at the end stands our glorious reward. Our second thought today, you are a stiff-necked people. Verses 4 through 6. Verse 4. Do not think in your heart, al tomar bilvavecha. No do say in your singular heart. Translating this as think is perfectly fine because the heart is the seat of reasoning and understanding. To say in one's heart implies thinking something is so. Because of this, the heart is the source of many, many woes for incorrect thinking. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Moses is careful to admonish Israel, the collective, as indicated by the singular word heart, in advance of the error of incorrect thinking concerning what is happening in relation to their entry into the land of Canaan. It is a lesson we also need to consider as we continue. What is the inevitable conclusion Israel is bound to make? And every one of us makes it in our minds from time to time. Verse 4 continues, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you. Israel will go into a land that the Lord prepared for them. It is a good and productive land. It is a land that had everything necessary for them already available to just pick up life as if they had been there for generations. And it will come through their simply acting in obedience to what the Lord told them to do. What is it that will inevitably go through their minds unless they are told in advance that it is otherwise? The answer is that they will be, verse 4 continues, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Look at all the Lord has done for us. We must be pretty swell for the Lord to have done it. We must be deserving of what has happened. And because the Lord is righteous, we must likewise be righteous. We are the cat's meow and we are the bee's knees. <laughs> Examples of this type of thinking are found all the way throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 65 provides a beautiful example. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Paul uses Isaiah's words to describe Israel. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But who is the New Testament's premier example of self-righteousness? The Pharisees. They looked to themselves as the epitome of righteousness and favor with God. They were of the covenant people. They possessed wealth and status, and therefore they thought that the Lord must truly be pleased with them. But from what tradition did Paul arise? Yes, from the Pharisees, just as we saw in our text verse today. Did Paul deserve the inheritance? Was it because of his righteousness that it came about? On the contrary, he said, and be found in him, meaning Jesus, not having my own righteousness. Paul understood that the inheritance was not because of who he was, what culture he came from, what schooling and instruction he had, or in his obedience to the law. 
he obtained the inheritance by faith. He crossed the Jordan or believed in what Christ did and nothing more. And so in obtaining the inheritance, before I go on, he does say in the book of Acts, I could have been disobedient to the call. Yes, he was called. And yes, it was a pretty strong calling if anybody knows the story, but he could have been disobedient to it. He still had to come by faith, even after having seen. Never dismiss your unrighteousness before the Lord. And so in obtaining the inheritance, he wasn't there because of his righteousness, nor was it so for us in Christ or for Israel in Canaan. Verse 4 continues, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. A new noun, risha, is introduced here. It will be used again in the next verse. It signifies a wrongdoing, but especially in the moral sense. Thus, it is wickedness. The Lord has a land of promise where Israel is to dwell. He will dwell with his people in that land, but the Lord is holy and therefore his people are to be separate from unholiness. He is righteous and therefore the people are to be righteous. The assumption of Israel and the assumption of many in the church is that because we are selected to participate in this state of holiness and righteousness, that we must possess our own righteousness. That is the lie that our heart is brimming over with. It was, and it remains to this day, an infection in Israel. And it is an infection in the hearts of the church right now. But Moses is telling Israel in advance that they are not to claim it is because of their righteousness at all. Rather, it is the wickedness that must be purged from the land. And that wickedness is reflected in those things that are contrary to the holiness of the Lord. If Israel participates in those unholy things, then they will, by default, demonstrate their own wickedness. The law is supposedly given to avoid that, as it says in the book of Leviticus. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Why would the nations of Canaan need to be exterminated if Israel was already righteous? They have the law. If that were a means to righteousness, then the inhabitants would not need to be exterminated, would they? Are we saved by faith through Christ? Has God said we can't be around the people of the world? In fact, he says exactly the opposite in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Don't count a brother. Don't call them a brother and have him hang around with him if he's doing something wrong. But I'm not telling you to not do that with the other people. He said, otherwise, you'd have to take yourself out of the world. So what's the difference between Israel, who has to get the people out of the land, and us who can live in the land? The source is the Lord. If the law was a means to righteousness, they would not have to remove one person from the land of Canaan, would they? Israel could do its thing, and the nations could do their thing, and everything would just be fine. But such is not the case. Now put the church in place of Israel. We are given the inheritance. That's already assured. And yet we cannot claim it was because of our righteousness. The fact that we accepted Christ because he died for our sins means that we were sinners. And the fact that we who have inherited the inheritance must put on the whole armor of God, guess what? That shows us that we are still unrighteous in and of ourselves. Israel's position in Canaan was as a holy people to the Lord. Because of this, they were to conduct themselves in righteousness before the Lord, driving out the wicked in order to be kept from their unrighteousness. Our position is a holy people of the Lord. Thus, we are to display his righteousness to the people with whom we dwell. The way we do that is to drive the wickedness out from ourselves, conforming ourselves to him. I don't know about you, but it's a daily struggle with me. I'll never admit that I've attained any source of righteousness of my own. Far be it. Israel is the template, the law is the standard, and perfect execution of the law is the expectation. Israel failed because the expectation was impossible for them to meet. We, Israel someday and we today, will prevail because the expectation is realized in Christ, who alone is our righteousness. This is what Israel will someday realize from Jeremiah chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. 
the Lord our righteousness. It's not the Lord is righteous and so we're also righteous. It's the Lord our righteousness. Israel is being schooled in the source of righteousness. It is something they in and of themselves did not possess. Verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Lo Not in your righteousness and in uprightness to your heart. Now, another new noun is introduced, yosher, or uprightness. That comes from the verb yashar, signifying what is straight or right. Moses is rewording the previous verse to ensure that not only does Israel not think to themselves that it is because of their righteousness, but so that they know that the notion is entirely excluded. But in these words, he goes further in saying, or the uprightness of your heart, he is showing that righteousness is not an externally achieved state. In other words, as Kyle says, it is to indicate briefly that outward works do not constitute true righteousness. Rather, works must be of faith. If they are not of faith, then they are useless. This is more fully fleshed out by the author of Hebrews. And then those examples are used by James in some of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. James chapter 2. Everything comes back to the heart and it's properly directed faith in and love of the Lord. Understanding this, Moses says, verse 5 continues, that you go in to possess their land. The pronoun is emphatic. Ata balereshet et artsam. You go in to possess their land. Not only should Israel not think the Lord is dealing with them because of their righteousness, such is definitely not the case. In them, there is absolutely no reason that they are preferred above anyone else. The Lord could have chosen any people group and there would have been as much righteousness in them as in Israel. Rather, they are being brought in for an entirely different reason. Actually, two reasons, beginning with verse 5 going on, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. The first reason is based on the moral nature of the Lord in relation to the conduct of the land's inhabitants. It goes all the way back to Genesis 15, but it is also connected to the second reason. Before I go on, if the moral nature of the Lord demands this to happen in Canaan, do you think that it doesn't also demand that it happen in the world as a whole? coming soon to a tribulation period near you. I'm so surprised that America hasn't been yet judged because we are a people that have called on the name of the Lord. But the whole world is going to go into this terrible display of destruction because they have rejected God. The Lord said to Abraham that he is Jehovah who brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give him the land of Canaan. After that, he said, now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord had set a marker and had it placed upon the Amorites who dwelt in Canaan. That marker was one of incurred iniquity. Think of it right here. When the level of their iniquity had risen to the height of his marker, as is based upon his moral character, the time for their judgment was set. This shows the gracious and patient nature of the Lord. The promise to Abraham was made, but it would not be implemented until the Amorites had been given the chance to seek him while he could be found. We can know this is true because Job, a man not of the covenant people, was considered a blameless and upright man before the Lord, among others who were outside of the covenant line. Job was considered a son of God through faith in the promise of the coming Messiah, as is recorded in Job 1, verse 6. Moses is clear that the Lord was driving out the inhabitants of the land because of the people's wickedness, not because of either Israel's righteousness or because of the uprightness of their heart. But there is a second reason, notably connected to the first, verse 5 going on, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers. And to the end purpose to confirm the word which swore Jehovah to your fathers. The words here are based on the Lord's love for the fathers. That's Deuteronomy 4 verse 37. And on his covenant keeping faithfulness to them. That's Deuteronomy 7 verse 8. 
it is the covenant faithfulness that Moses highlights here. The love is what leads to the word. The word of the Lord is an oath, and the oath must stand because it is the word of the Lord. This oath to the fathers was specifically, verse 5 continues, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Le Avraham, le Yitzhak, ule Yaakov. To Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It wasn't just to Abraham, which was then inclusive of Isaac and Jacob, but rather it was to each of them. You see how important that is? They leave off the two. You're getting a false sense of what is being said. It's going to each one of them in turn. The word which the Lord swore to these men was given, it was binding, and it continues to this day. And this brings in an important point. If the promise is made to these fathers, all three of them, and that promise is of the land inheritance, and if that land inheritance is typologically picturing Christ and the heavenly inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, then how can it be that the church has replaced Israel? If the promise were only made to Abraham, one could make that argument, and indeed the world is full of such people. But because the promise is to Isaac and to Jacob as well, and because Israel is the recipient of that promise, then it cannot be that the church has replaced Israel. No land promise is given to the Gentile-led church. The author of Hebrews specifically says that entering the land of Canaan did not equate to entering the promised rest. He proves that by citing David. Now, was David before or after the Exodus? After. He wrote his words many years after Joshua was dead. Israel, the collective whole, is who is being addressed in these verses by Moses. They are consistently in the singular in this passage. Though the earthly inheritance of Canaan is being referred to, it is only given as a typological picture of the final inheritance found in Jesus Christ. And it will come upon them someday when they come to understand what Moses finishes our verses with. We come to verse 6. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. How many times has he said this in six verses? I mean, I bet you said it 473 times. Moses, I'm, I'm a hyperbolic person. I, I, yes, I know. Moses, again, repeats the same thought. The good land set before them is being given to the people, not because of their righteousness, rather because of the continued repetition, such an idea is wholly excluded. And it thus typifies the salvation of each one of us. Again, as Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Israel had done nothing to merit what they were being given, and the believer has done zip. He's done nothing to merit what is bestowed upon us by God. These words in Deuteronomy shout out that Moses is truly the author, by the way. Any other person would have lessened the force of the constant repetition we have seen, and they would certainly have excluded our final words of the day. Verse 6 finishes with, For you are a stiff-necked people. Ki am keshe oref atah. For people stiff-necked you. This is a favorite expression of both the Lord and of Moses concerning them. It is used by one or the other eight times in the books of Moses. The phrase is normally explained as being obstinate, but it is more than that. It signifies a perverse people who want to behave in a way that is both unacceptable and unreasonable, even in spite of the consequences that they will face. They know judgment is coming, and yet they keep on doing it. It is a metaphor which finds its source in an animal which will not submit itself to yoke or to bridle. It stiffens itself against the pull of the rain, even if it hurts. These closing words of today set the stage for the many charges against Israel that Moses will lay out in the coming verses, proving to them that the term stiff-necked is both appropriate and just. His words will also confirm the fact that they are lacking any righteousness at all. They are the sons of their fathers who acted corruptly from the moment that they left Egypt. Moses will instruct them in how they can avoid continuing on in that vein and to be considered as right and acceptable before the Lord. And though Moses will speak out words of law to them through the rest of the book, it will not be that law that will bring them closer to the Lord. It will be the right and pleasing state of their heart, which softens their neck and makes them pliable to the reins of their master. Until that state is realized, the battle between the two will continue. 
It is a battle which continues for them today, and it is a battle that continues on in the lives of most of the people of the world as well. The Lord has done the work. He has laid out the path to glory, and he stands at the door at the end of it for any to come through. And yet man stubbornly turns his neck and attempts to walk his own path. Like unreasoning animals, we buck against the goads, and we only harm ourselves in the process. The Lord cannot accept us in such a state. Only when our hearts are willing to acknowledge that we need the righteousness of Christ can we then call out for what he offers. The good news for us is that when we do, he will hear, he will respond, and he will give us our part in the inheritance offered to his people. May you yield your stiff neck to him today. This is the lesson of the book of Deuteronomy so far, is that there is a people that is being called into an inheritance, and it mirrors you and I. I'm talking to the people of the world. I know most people here, probably everybody in this room is saved, but there are those that aren't. And you've got Israel that's been called by the Lord and they keep turning their neck against the rain and they keep, their neck is stiff and they won't yield their hearts. And the Lord says, it's by the, think of David, right? The guy broke the law, didn't he? He had somebody murdered, he committed adultery, he took a census without the Lord's approval. We could go on. And yet he was a man after the Lord's own heart because his heart was right with the Lord despite his failings. And when he failed, which we all do, what did he do? He wrote a psalm. Everybody here should be writing a psalm every time you do something wrong. And then he would pour out his life and his soul to the Lord. And the way he did it was through writing. Some of us do it through just crying. Some of us do it in one way or another. But it is our heart to the Lord that he wants to see and to evaluate. Not doing things of the law. He couldn't care diddly about that. That is done in his son. It is over. What the Lord wants you to do is to yield yourself to him. And once again, I'm talking to people that aren't saved. He wants you to acknowledge, I have sinned and I need a savior. Christ died for my sins and I accept that payment. I accept the pardon that is offered in the hands of God. That's what he wants from you. And then from there, you just simply believe in your heart that God did these things, that he raised him from the dead for your justification and you will be saved and that will never be taken away from you it is an eternal deal all right thank god for jesus christ please call on him today and be saved through the precious shed blood that was for you i have a closing verse here for you from romans chapter 3 it's verses 21 through 24 but now the righteousness of god apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets told us that this was coming. They witnessed to that fact, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Woohoo! Praise God for Jesus Christ. Next week, is I'd like to say hi to uh, Jim and Ejen. They called me last night, and uh, uh, Sergio and Hidako and me and Rhoda. I got those in the wrong order, but anyway, uh, they sent us some marshmallows from Japan, and they were really good. And I told them that last night, but I wanted to thank them because they said they'd be here today. So um, there you go with that. Thank you, guys. Uh, Deuteronomy 9, 7 through 17 is next week. While the people stayed below, Moses climbed higher and higher. It's entitled, Then the Mountain Burned with Fire. That'll be our 32nd Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? But remember, even after being saved, we still have to do things. Stand, gird, put on. If you don't do those things, you're going to be ineffective in your salvation. And you're the one that has to stand before the Lord. Okay, last week I gave you a question and Andy got it within one second of me asking. And guess what? My friend Kim in Missouri emailed me about something and she said, I get a ride on that YF-22 because I got it also right away. Okay, and so yet last night, late last night, I got in this and I flew over to Missouri and I picked her up and gave her a ride. Okay. I've got one similar to that today. You learned today that the word neck is oref. Who is named after this word and is used as a metaphor of turning away from the Lord and back to others? Orpah. Who, did you say that? My brother got it. I didn't even finish the question. Woohoo! Orpah. Very good. That was marvelous. If you want, you can 
I'll trust you. You can fly this around Sarasota or you can have a Maserati. That, I didn't even finish the question. He's, he's just, I know, he's just sitting there like Orpa. No, it was no setup. Unless he, unless he read my notes, which I don't think so. They were here. I protect these during the break. I don't even... That was, that, I'm astonished. That was very good. Would anybody else have gotten that? No. Nobody. Okay. Wow. Did you just listen to the Ruth series or something? No. No? He's got a great memory. This guy knows every line of every movie he has ever seen in his life. And I'm not kidding when I say that. You want a line from a movie he's seen? He knows it. Okay. I've got a poem here for you. Not because of your righteousness. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations, at least seven, greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, but don't be in shock, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God, he who is infinitely higher, is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out, so you shall do, and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Please understand. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land that he will so do, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill his word, his word is true, which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob too. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. So please understand. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, precious word. Tomorrow is sermon typing day. It's already a day, Sunday, which is very long and tiring, and I wake up and I'm tired, and so I'd like to pray right now that you prepare my fingers for the battle of tomorrow as I face your word again, and I would pray that anybody here that has heard today's sermon that has not yield, yielded his or her heart to you would do so today that that person would say, I want what Jesus offers, I want to be saved, and I want to spend eternity in your presence apart from this horrifying life that we're living. It's good in so many ways. The sun is beautiful. The web is intricate. The sound of the daughter or son laughing is so wonderful to our ears. And yet the things we do with this world are so so bad, Lord. We fouled it up so much that we just yearn to be with you away from this body of death and this land of corruption. We wait for that day, and until it comes, we'll just keep on praising you. So just give us enough, enough strength to do that one thing, and we will be content and satisfied just to praise you for who you are. We love you, we do praise you, and we acknowledge you in our hearts and in our souls. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. amen.